Thank you, ladies. Uh, please take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to uh, the New Testament, to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians is uh, right after the books of First and Second Corinthians. We're going to be reading uh, the first 15 verses of Galatians 5. I mentioned this this morning, but we are going to take a break from Matthew for a bit, and we are going to spend... Uh, what will probably be the next uh, three or four Sunday nights in Galatians 5 and 6. So Galatians 5, beginning at verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is." But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another... Watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Good Friday is less than uh, two weeks away. Children, you know that um, Good Friday is the day that, that we especially focus our attention on what Jesus did on the cross 2,000 years ago. What impact does the cross have in your life? What impact does the cross have in your day-to-day life? When you go to work tomorrow or you're at home tomorrow or you go to school tomorrow, what impact does the cross of Christ have upon you? In other words, how does what Jesus did for you 2,000 years ago affect the way that you live now? Specifically, how does it affect the way you live within the church? How does it affect the way you treat the people sitting around you tonight? That's what we want to consider the next three or four Sunday nights. And as we look at this passage tonight, we're going to see just two things. First of all, we're going to see that Jesus has set us free. That's very important. Secondly, though, another very important truth is that Jesus has set us free for service. Not to do what we want, not to live our own agendas, but he has set us free for service. 
Now, there are some um, doctrines that we would say are non-negotiable. There are doctrines that, that we would say you must hold to that doctrine if you were to call yourself a Christian. The doctrine of the Trinity is one. Uh, the truth that Jesus is both true God and true man is another. The Bible is the word of God. That's another. But there are also doctrines which we would not say are non-negotiable. In other words, there are, there are doctrines that, that Christians can have genuine debate about and, and genuine disagreement over. For example, should the children of believers be baptized? We, of course, would, would say yes, but our Baptist brothers and sisters would say no. Will there be a literal 1,000-year reign of Jesus on this earth one day? We would say, or I would say, no. But our dispensational brothers and sisters would say, yes. Can guitars be used in worship? Some people would say, no, I don't think so. Other people would have no problem with that. All of those and, and many others are, are areas in which Christians can have a, a genuine, healthy discussion and, and disagreement. There, there is no view that would necessarily exclude you from the kingdom of heaven because there is genuine disagreement over those things. But, but when it comes to what the churches of Galatia were dealing with, there is no debate. There is no room for discussion. There is no room for disagreement. In the churches that Paul is writing this letter to, there was a deadly heresy being spread. The gospel that Paul had, had spent many, many, many months preaching, the gospel that Paul was willing to die for, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from works, was now being challenged in these churches. And, and children, what was being taught was that if you wanted to be a Christian, if you wanted to go to heaven, if you wanted your sins forgiven, not only must you believe in Jesus, but you also must do good works. You must contribute your good works. Yes, you must believe in Jesus. And yes, you must trust him as your Savior. That was not being denied. No one was denying that. But in addition to that, these false teachers had infiltrated these churches and, and they were saying, look, you also need to obey the law of Moses. Specifically, if you are a man, you need to be circumcised. And so you had these two competing ideas, two, two very different ideas of how a person is right with God. And only one of them is right. They can't both be right. That there's only one answer to the question, how can I be right with God? Children, it's like the question, what is two plus two? We all know that, that two plus two equals four. There's only one right answer to that question. You can't say, well, the answer could be four, but the answer could also be nine. There's only one right answer to that question, four. The same is true with salvation. The same is true with the question, how can I be right with God? And so Paul writes this letter to drive home the point 
the very serious point that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and there's nothing that we contribute, nothing at all, to our right standing with God. Any other gospel, any idea that that we contribute something is false, it is heretical. Paul makes that point at the very beginning of this letter. He says in chapter 1, Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. The Apostle Paul took false gospels very seriously. And so should we. So that's the background on, on why Paul wrote this book. Paul wants to urge these Galatian Christians not to fall back into the mindset of of thinking that they have to contribute something to their standing with God. That's why he says, look at the text, he says in verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Now it's important, of course, to understand what Paul is not saying. Uh, When he says that Christ has um, uh, set us free, He's not saying that we are now free to live however we want. He's not saying that that you now have, look, you have the freedom to basically do whatever you want to do. What Paul is saying, though, is this. He's saying you are free from the law as a means of your justification. You are free from the law as, as an avenue of being right with God. Remember the false teachers who were known as Judaizers. The the Judaizers were saying if you wanted to be right with God, you needed to obey Moses. You needed to be circumcised. Your obedience plays some part in your justification. But Paul says, no, no, that's a false gospel. Jesus has set you free from that. Jesus, children, Jesus didn't come to this earth and and say, okay, look, I've done my part. I've, I've lived for you. I've died for you, I rose again from the dead, and now it's on you. I did what I was supposed to do, and now you need to do your part by obeying the law in order to be justified. Paul says to think that way and to live that way is nothing but an impossible burden to bear. It's putting yourself back in bondage, putting yourself back under slavery. And Paul says, no, you've been set free from that. In fact, Paul even says, you know, if you want to go the obedience route, you need to obey the the whole enchilada. You need to obey everything. Look at verse 3. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. Which route do you want to go? Which path do you want to take? Do do you want to go the route of your obedience? Or do you want to go the route of the perfect obedience of the Lord Jesus? One commentator writes this. He says, our salvation is not a joint enterprise between us and God where, where God provides a little bit of help and then we do the best we can. On the contrary, to attempt to bring forward our obedience 
even at one point of the law as grounds of our justification is to bring upon ourselves the obligation to obey the entirety of the law. I, 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 I want to say to people who think that they can, can somehow earn their salvation or contribute to their salvation, I, I want to say to them, look, if you want to go that route, you have to keep the whole thing. That's what Paul says. Paul says that's the way of bondage, that's the way of death, that's the way of eternal judgment. And and here Paul is pleading with these Galatian Christians who are falling under this spell. He's saying, no, please, no, don't don't go that way. And I I plead with you tonight to, to not go that path. And then notice what Paul says in verse four. He says, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Sometimes people use this verse as um, proof that you can lose your salvation. But if that's what Paul is teaching here, um, it would would contradict what the Bible says elsewhere about the security of the believer. And, And we know that God does not contradict himself. Instead, what Paul is saying here is that the person who who attempts to be justified on the basis of their obedience, that person has no saving relationship with Jesus. That person has no understanding, true understanding of the grace of God. And and if that's you tonight sitting here or or watching this evening, I I beg you to, to run from that thinking, to get off that path. Paul says Jesus Christ, his His perfect obedience, his death on the cross is the only proper ground of your right standing before God. Now as Christians, we we know what a glorious, comforting message that is. Brothers and sisters, the, the Lord Jesus has set you free. He's delivered you from your sin. He's delivered you from God's wrath. He's he's delivered you from the law as a means of your justification. Now Satan hates this message. Satan will do all in his power to, to overthrow this message. Satan will do what whatever he can do to, to get preachers from stop preaching this message. He will will try to do whatever he can do to stop you from believing this message because he hates this. Martin Luther wrote this. He said, Satan hates the light of the gospel. That is to say, the doctrine of grace, liberty, consolation, and light. Therefore, when he sees that it begins to appear, in other words, when, when people begin preaching the gospel, In believing the gospel, Luther says Satan fights against it with all his might and will stir up storms and tempests to utterly overthrow it. We must not be surprised when there's opposition to the gospel. We we must not be shocked when when Satan seeks to undermine and destroy the, the proclamation of Christ. But we must never shrink back from declaring the gospel because we know that this is, this is the only message that will bring any of us, anyone, true freedom. True freedom is not found in your obedience. 
True freedom is found in Christ and in Christ alone. And so everything else we're going to look at tonight and Lord willing next Sunday and Lord willing the Sunday after that, everything we're going to look at in these chapters is is founded or grounded on this. Jesus has set us free. Second thing, though, is that Jesus has set us free for service. If you have your Bible open, drop down to verse 13. Notice what Paul says. He says, for you were called to freedom, brothers. There, There it is again. The way of Christ plus works is the way of bondage. But the way of Christ alone is the way of freedom. Christ has freed you. But notice what he says next. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. This word opportunity is a a very interesting word. In the original language, it's it's a war term. It's a term that that literally could be translated base of operations. Children, a a base of operations is the place from which a a military, an army or or something like that, an an army will begin its offensive attack in a war. What Paul is saying is essentially this. Don't use your freedom that Christ has won for you Don't use your freedom as a base of operations or as a starting point for gratifying your sinful nature. Again, understand what Paul's getting at here. There there are those who might think, well, you know, Jesus has set me free from my sin. He set me free from eternal judgment. Um, I'm forgiven. I'm adopted. I'm an heir of eternal life. And, and none of this is because of anything that I've done, and so I guess I'm free to do whatever I want. That, that might be the way that, that some people think. But Paul says, no, that's, that's not why Jesus set you free. That's not what you're to use your freedom for. Instead, he says at the end of verse 13, through love, serve one another. It's so important for us to hear that, that Jesus didn't set us free so that we could pursue our own selfish agendas. He didn't set us free so that we can say, you know, it's really cool that I now have my fire insurance and I'm good. I've got my get into heaven card and, and now I can kind of do what I want. He didn't set us free so that we could live a life of of pleasing ourselves, self-centeredness. He set us free so that we would serve one another. You see, this idea that that, that Jesus came to to save you from your sin and to save you from hell, and now you're just kind of out there on your own doing, doing what you want, that... That idea, brothers and sisters, is a fundamental misunderstanding of the work of Christ. It's a fundamental misunderstanding of what Jesus came to do. It it fails to see that Christ is not only our justification, but he is also our sanctification. Theologians will sometimes refer to this as the, the double benefit of Christ. In other words, we... We receive through Christ both justification and sanctification. The the true believer in Christ is 
now a new creation, right? 2 Corinthians 5. New desires, new affections. And that means that there will be a change in our lives. As, as those who belong to Christ, as those who are united to him, it will be our desire to live for him. Imperfectly, of course, but we will desire to live for him. It will be our desire to, to follow him. It will be our desire to live as he lived. And children, how did Jesus live his life? Matthew 20, 28, Jesus says that he did not come to be served, but to serve. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, Paul says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Philippians 2, verse 6, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, Born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If you want to know what what true service looks like, look to Jesus. Jesus came to serve. Jesus came to give. Jesus came to die. That's true service. Now, of course, Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is our Redeemer. We rejoice in that, but Jesus is also our example, isn't he? He's our example. First Peter 2, Peter says that Jesus has left us an example that we should follow in his steps. You see, we are called to follow in the steps of Jesus by serving one another. To put it another way, as Paul does here in verse 14, he says, we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's a wonderful way to, to summarize how we are to treat other people. That's a wonderful summary of, of what it means to, to love others, to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, how do you love yourself? Do, does this mean that we have you know, warm, fuzzy feelings about ourselves? Does this mean that we go, oh, I, I, I can't believe how much I love myself? I can't believe the, the kind of feelings I have about myself. No, we love ourselves by taking care of ourselves. We love ourselves by, by being concerned about our needs. When you're hungry, you get something to eat. When you're dirty, you take a shower. When you're tired, you go to sleep. Well, what this means is that to love your neighbor as yourself means that you concern yourself for the needs of your neighbor. Now, this certainly pertains to all of life. This, whether we're at work or, or school or home or, or interacting with people in our neighborhood, we, we should tangibly care about them. The story of the Good Samaritan is a, is a wonderful lesson that anyone who comes into con- or anyone we come into contact with is our neighbor. But the context here of Galatians 5 suggests that Paul is thinking about life in the church. He's thinking about life here. He says in verse 13, through love serve one another. He's talking about the body of believers here at Zion. 
He's talking about here in the body of Christ. This is what Paul told the church in Philippi in Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. A good question to ask ourselves tonight is how can we do that? How can we be a church that looks out for the interests of one another? First of all, I think there's a sense in which a lot of that is going on here already. This is a, this is a very generous congregation in many, many ways. But at the same time, there's always room for improvement. There's always um, the needed reminder of how we're called to live in the context of the church. And sometimes we need to be reminded and, and we need to be stirred back to what the Lord calls us to do. And so I'm going to give you tonight just, just two tangible ways that, that, that we can cultivate a serve one another mindset. First of all is this. We, we need to be very careful not to lose sight of the gospel. It's easy to think that the gospel is for the beginning of the Christian life. That the good news of the life, death, and, uh, and resurrection of Jesus is, is what we need to hear in order to come to saving faith. But, but we say that's for the beginning of the Christian life. We don't need the gospel anymore. For many reasons, we need to continue to regularly hear the gospel. And one of the reasons for that is that the gospel serves as the wind in the sails of the Christian life. Children, you've, you've all seen sailboats before, right? A sailboat is not going anywhere without wind. Wind is necessary to move that sailboat along. As we live the Christian life, we need to be moved along, we need to be empowered by the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for us motivates us. It serves as the wind in our sails and motivates us to serve one another. Because as I hear the gospel, I, I remember my Savior served me by dying for me. He served me by, by giving his life for me. And out of gratitude for his sacrifice, I want to serve others. And, and so the first help in being a serve one another church is to never lose sight of the gospel, to never lose sight of what the Lord has done for us. Because it's motivated by that, driven by that, empowered by that, that the, we then become a congregation of people who want to serve one another. Secondly, though, uh, if we are to be a serve one another church, we must take on a specific mindset when it comes to the church. Unfortunately, there are people in our day and age who view the church as a consumer. In other words, the question that they ask about the church is, what's in it for me? What can this church do for me? And, and so many people go to church because um, they like the music or they like the preaching or they like the people. Because they're, they're, they're looking at church like a consumer. What, what is the church going to give me? 
They don't ask the question, typically, how can I serve? I want to encourage all of us here tonight to to come to church with the latter mindset and not the former mindset. Let me encourage us not to primarily think, what is Zion going to do for me? But to primarily ask the question, what can I put into this church? What can I do to further the, the ministry at Zion? Think about that this week. Reflect on that this week. Now, I know a number of you are very involved already. A number of you are very diligent prayer warriors. A number of you are very faithful people. But it's good to be stirred up, and it's good to again ask ourselves the question, what can I do as a member of the body of Christ here at Zion? What can I do to contribute? How can I, through love, serve others? Maybe it's, maybe it's going up to and getting to know a new member. Maybe you see somebody in the fellowship hall and they're standing by themselves and you have no idea who they are and you work up the courage to go up to them and talk to them. Maybe it's um, talking to someone who, who doesn't have any family here. Not all of us have tons of family here. Maybe it's going up and talking to someone who has no family and, and maybe they're, they're lonely because they don't have anyone. Maybe it's um, signing up to work VBS this summer or some other ministry. But, but let me ask this question. It's a rhetorical question. What do you think the impact of a church would be where the members were constantly asking, what can I do for this church? What can I do for the kingdom of God? Notice how the passage begins, or or ends, I'm sorry. Ends in verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. One of the quickest ways for a church to lose its credibility is when the members of a church are at each other's throats. One of the quickest ways for the the gospel to have no impact in a community is when members are biting and devouring each other. When that happens, that, that speaks very poorly of our claims to be the followers of Jesus Christ. And so Paul calls us here to remember our freedom, and out of that freedom, serve one another. Some of you were here 25 years ago when this church first started. And if you've ever been involved in starting a church before, you know that there's a, there's a lot of work that um, has to take place in a church plant for a church to get off the ground. And, and you know that, that when a church starts, there's usually um, a, a certain energy in church plants that, that may not be present in churches that have existed for years. I, I know this from my own personal experience starting a church over 20 years ago, that, that it takes a certain amount of energy and a certain amount of involvement from everybody pitching in to get something started. 
Some of you here tonight can think back 25 years ago and you can remember all the energy it took to get Zion URC started. In a church plant, everyone is pitching in. Chairs have to be set up, hymnals have to be put out, bulletins have to be printed and folded. There's a lot to do. And the beautiful thing is that often everyone is involved. But over time, that everyone pitches in mindset fades away. Let me encourage you tonight that as Zion sets a course for the next 25 years, let me encourage you to use the freedom that Jesus has earned and won for you to serve one another, to be involved, to be active, to find something to plug into. If not, it's very easy to drift away. It's very easy if you're on the fringe to just kind of fall away. But let me encourage us as this church starts another 25 years to rekindle out of, out of love for Christ and gratitude for his work on the cross for us, let me encourage all of us to once again be active in serving one another so that we might not only benefit each other, but also that we might be a gospel witness to the community around us. Let's bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the freedom that the Lord Jesus has won for us. We know that this is not a freedom for our own self-indulgence, our own self-centeredness, but this is a freedom that he has won for us that we might be servants, that we might follow in his steps. Thank you, Lord, for all the faithful servants here, for the faithful servants you've used all throughout the years to not only get this church started, but to continue the ministry on. And we pray, Lord, that, that as we prepare to, uh, again, remember Good Friday, to remember what the Lord Jesus did for us on the cross, and as we also think of the future ministry here at Zion, that you would stir us up out of gratitude for the gospel to be those who love and who serve each other. Lord, this is our prayer. We pray that you would work this in us for the glory of your name, and we pray it in Jesus' name.